it is not an overstatement to say you can eliminate ADHD in most people in a few months with basic SMR neurofeedback. The literature shows you can drop seizures. The average person, it's more than 50% and 5% of people have complete control of seizures for a year, at least, doing neurofeedback. And it was discovered 50-something years ago on cats. We stand today. The Business Method with a shout The Business Method. The Business Method Podcast. The Business Method Podcast featuring Chris Reynolds. Entrepreneurs, systems, methods, tools, and tactics for location independence. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, I'm your host, Chris Reynolds, and welcome to the Business Method Podcast, a podcast featuring successful entrepreneurs and high-profile people dissecting their business models. We dissect the different methods, tools, and tactics of high-performance online entrepreneurs and high-caliber people in a series format. On our first series, we interviewed 100 entrepreneurs in 100 days that have built businesses creating $100,000 or more annually. On our second series, we interviewed 100 entrepreneurs that have built location-independent businesses that produce over a million dollars in annual revenue. And now we're interviewing 100 major influencers to get behind the minds and the science of using influence to grow business and influence income results, economies, and cultures. There's a growing number of people building these caliber of businesses like this, and we're going to figure out what it takes to make this happen. Now, let's jump in today's show. The Business Method. Do you really know if you have a healthy brain? Most of us would like to think so, but how can we really tell? We know if we have a healthy body. We know if we have healthy habits. So why don't we know if we have healthy brains? One reason why is because society associates unhealthy brains with mental disorders. And if we don't have a mental disorder, then our brain must be healthy, right? Wrong. We could actually have problems with our brains for years and years before it shows any signs whatsoever. Brain health is on the cusp of becoming a really big movement, and Dr. Andrew Hill is one that is helping lead that movement. Andrew is a neuroscientist, entrepreneur, and biohacking advocate. He holds a PhD in cognitive neuroscience from UCLA and is best known as an expert neurofeedback practitioner and brain fitness coach. With an extensive history working in mental health and as a university lecturer in research, Dr. Hill founded Peak Brain Institute in 2015. Peak Brain Institute is is a community-oriented company whose mission is to expand understanding and accessibility to brain hacking technologies. What I really like about them is that their main mission is to make more brain gyms where people can learn about and exercise their brain without it being a mental issue. On the show today, we chat in depth with Andrew about how our brains actually operate. We talk about how scanning brains can prevent many mental disorders. We talk about flow states and the effects of alcohol and drugs on our brains. And we also discuss the importance of meditation and how it is really changing brains for the better. Later in the show, we discuss the many benefits people with healthy brains can get by scanning and continuing to exercise our brains on a regular basis. Very, very in-depth, informative episode about our brains, you guys. And without further ado, let's welcome Andrew to the show. Entrepreneurs, systems, methods, tools, and tactics. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the podcast. I'm excited to introduce Dr. Andrew Hill, otherwise known as Andrew, uh, to the show. Andrew, how are you doing today? I'm doing well, Chris. Uh, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Thanks for coming on the show. And we were introduced from a mutual friend, Rian 
Rian Doris, who works with Flow State Collective nowadays. And he was mentioning some of the science that you guys are working, the on the cusp science about neural brains and brain waves and brain mapping and all this fun stuff that we've been talking about a lot. Uh, so I got really excited about having you on the show because the more that I think we learn about this stuff, the more it really helps uh, mental health and mental fitness, which is what you guys are focusing on. So where, are you in California, LA today? Yeah, currently I am. I have to sometimes check when I wake up in the morning and figure out where I am because I have uh, three offices that I spent a lot of time in and they're kind yeah. of throughout the country and um, so I, I have to figure out which times that I'm in. It helps that I'm an entrepreneur and have one of those 4 a.m. Uh, schedules when I'm in my main time zone. Yeah. So when I travel to like the central time zone, which is my uh, you know, other big office in St. Louis, um, I don't adjust my sleep schedule. I just wake up at 6 a.m. in St. Louis and 4 a.m. in Los Angeles and it, it works out pretty well. Right now I'm in LA, you know. That's really intelligent. I, I travel a lot and work in different time zones quite often. Mm -hmm. I think I should adapt something like that because, you know, it takes a, a while to get over that jet lag in a, in a new time zone and trying to wake up to these different hours. It does. There's a bunch of uh, zeitgeibers, time givers for the brain that are circadian sort of re-entrainers. They help your circadian rhythm synchronize with the Earth's photo period. But in spite of the photo period being about light and dark, the strongest entrainers actually are not the melatonin-driven light ones. They're uh, when you eat. So in terms of training with a new um, time zone or across multiple time zones, the, by far the most important thing is to line your eating time up with the meal times uh, that you want to be eating in. And then uh, in terms of keeping circadian rhythm you know, in, in a time zone nice and stable, the most important thing is fasting a few hours before bed. So you go to bed a little hungry, you wake up you know, full of energy and refreshed. If you get a bit full, you wake up hungry and tired. It's kind of an inverse relationship. So, yeah. because of hormone cycling. So, it's really important to line your eating up. And I, I do that. If I go to St. Louis, I have to be careful not to eat too late or I'll come back to LA and want to wake up later. It, yeah. it's, a, it's a really easy effect to throw off. So, how about traveling to different continents? So, like, mm -hmm. like if you were going from LA to Europe, for example, how would you prepare yourself? We have an office in, um, or a recording station, QEEG station for the brain mapping stuff in uh, Sweden, southern Sweden. And um, we have some other partners throughout the country, throughout the, the European continent. And um, I probably am there about twice a year. And if you would do it just on natural adaptation, you would have to spend about an, a day per time zone. So we're talking around nine days to fully adjust deeply, <laughs> if you will. Right. And, you know, we, we can do things a little faster. So when I was doing it just through, um, you know, brute force, just behavior, just going there and doing it, I was spending about three or four days, maybe three days to adjust once I got there, and about twice that to adjust when I got back. It was really not tenable, and I would do some conferences and yeah, do them on no sleep. And I'm fairly functional, and I have a strategy and uh, things like nootropics and some experience there. I can dial things in if I need to in terms of functional performance or you know missing sleep. But uh, now I I do some things differently. And again, lining up your 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 meal times ahead of time, you know, starting three days ahead of time, I'll start really shifting my meal times away from essentially uh, West Coast, California, if I'm here, or East Coast, and then towards a uh, European time zone. And then up to three days ahead of time, I'll do that, and I'll play around with when I sleep and when I get light, a few other things on the trip over. There's a great app. I forget who, which astronaut it was, but one of our NASA astronauts created this app called Time Shifter, where you can plug in the time zones, when you're going, the dates, and then what your adaptation strategy is before you leave, after you get there, how many days you'd like to adapt. And you can right. kind of, the maximum you can do about two hours a day with this kind of strategy, playing around with food and light and sleep and things like that, or two, two time zones uh, a day without, say, any real stress. But now when I go to Sweden, I go to Malmo and Copenhagen, Denmark uh, a couple times a year. It's about a day and a half of adjustment when I get there and about three days when I get back. 
So I've really cut the time in half just by like minimizing, you know, working against the natural entrainment and trying to enhance a few of the things that I, uh, you know, know work well. So, um, yeah, I use time shifter and I, I, I line my eating up really quickly ahead of time, uh, before any, I'm where I'm going. Any exercise, like if you, you know, that's it. What I've been testing out is, um, fasting 16 hours before arrival yeah. destination, then a good, uh, mild, mild to uh, hard exercise and then go to sleep in the new time zone at the right time. Yeah, and that's fasted exercises, well it, it works really great. Fasted exercise is another really strong uh, time giver, Zeitgeber. So um, working out is a strong one, basically periods of activity versus periods of inactivity. But if you start your period of activity with strong activity, i.e. exercise, and you do it fasted, you'll have a much stronger uh, circadian treatment effect than you would if you didn't do all those things together. So fasted exercise early in the morning in general will keep you strongly entrained much better than any other kind of exercise or not fasting. I don't do fasting as an entrainer because I do so much of it. It would be hard to do it as an entrainment signal. I just time my eating. At most, I eat within four hours a day now, mm -hmm. uh, and I tend to skip days. Since February uh, 1st, I've been doing alternate day fasting. I eat for two to four hours every other day, essentially. Just a way of keeping up energy and keeping autophagy going and recovery. And I'm 48 and best shape of my life, essentially, in body fat and energy and sleep regulation and a bunch of other features. I mean, I wake up at 4 a.m. with no alarm currently, and I could never do that in my 20s. So, and I, and I worked as a baker in my teens and, and, and early 20s and things. And so I used to get up at 3 or 4 a.m. every day. I've done it as a lifestyle. And I was, I was working in acute psychiatric environments. I've done lots of crazy sleep shifting against, you know, because of need. But now I can do it relatively easily. And at a time when I probably shouldn't entrain quite as well at 48, I shouldn't have quite as much ability to shift take longer right but it doesn't it just is efficient now so it's nice to have that it's for an entrepreneurial perspective it's huge yeah to be able to to exert without a, a lot a huge loss of performance regardless of having to get up super early or not on the far side of it on the far side of company building on the far side of, of instantiating your vision for me it's not so much about like the corporate entrepreneur entrepreneur thing as an entrepreneurial drive i mean yeah i've done a few companies um, but they're really about ways of solving things that I think we should be solving. You know, it's about, it's being a mad scientist in some ways for people, you know, like, I think we should have access to this technology. Let's, let's figure out why we don't have access to this tech or what the best instantiation is. This is why I helped found uh, True Brain with Chris Thompson, because we were trying to figure out what the best play was in the nootropic space. And it was a kind of wild west, out a lot of well-regulated, well-understood options and proliferating marketing language and not a lot of science happening. And so we created a basic stack for True Brain um, just because people need something, a place to start. Uh, for me, it was about, okay, let me figure out how to get people the tools to tweak your brain, you know, to control your, your machine. And it, I, that's really been my mission for, you know, in lots of ways, education-wise and doing psychiatric work and doing the nootropic company, you know, True Brain. And then now with Peak Brain and another startup called Alter Alternatives before that, the goal with those companies are to give you other tools. And a lot of the goals at Peak Brain are something called biofeedback and neurofeedback. And then we also do a lot of mindfulness coaching and teaching and do a lot of free instruction there. But to round this access, giving you tools and the entrepreneur themselves need these tools. I mean, I, I joke that our corporate culture is becoming an amazing person. And so all of our employees who work there are like the most capacitive, well-rested, incredible startup type, you know, <laughs> full range, amazing stress management, resilient. And they're like 23 and 25 and 28 and 30 and have this vibe that they're 85 year old Tibetan monks and things, these long-term meditators. Wow. Um, because they do neurofeedback a lot. I mean, I joke, if you walk into a high-end gym like Equinox or something, everyone's abs are out, all the staff, you know, really in shape. 
Yeah. And if you walk into peak brains uh, around the country, you'll find that everyone's like deep listening skills and kindness and awareness is, is hanging out. <laughs> so um, it's, it's kind of a, kind of enjoyable to create this thing. And, you know, that's when it starts getting fun. Is when right. are working. And, and for me as a scientist, it's about making the, the giant picture. Let me figure out how to construct something that gives everyone the transformation, if you will, versus a therapist who would be working sort of with somebody one-on-one or a doctor who works top-down more diagnostically and find flaws in the in what they think is true. So it's a little bit of a different approach to you know, what we're doing with, with brain health and hacking. And it's a little different approach entrepreneurially because it's more about creating a, a service business that out of something that, that isn't really... Um, I mean, it's taking something typically in the medical or psychological space and moving it much more into the fitness space. Yeah, and, and that's what um, I really like about it because, you know, it's all, when you talk about brain health, well, nobody's really talking about it, it brain health, right? Um, but when you think about it, I've, I've listened to some other scientists and neuroscientists about this. Like we don't take care, most people don't know if they have a healthy brain. Right. Yeah. They, they have no idea. You can say, oh, I have a healthy body. I could have a healthy diet. Right. But is, do I really know if my brain's healthy? And you don't unless you get it scanned properly. Right. You don't know. And it's and, hard to know. Yeah. It's yeah. a little hard to know for a bunch of reasons. One is if you actually have a real problem, like an injury, about half of those are silent until you actually develop symptoms, you know, a decade later or something mm. where it accumulates. Like in CTE, NFL guys don't have don't have any uh, symptoms for a decade, you know, a lot of the time. Or in other cases of you know, injury-driven phenomena, uh, there's, some, there's some evidence that uh, eating disorders might be injury-driven. For instance, decades later, you're getting anxiety, sleep issues, eating disorders. But, yeah, but the other thing, the other problem, the general problem, is we can't tell how we're performing as the performance fluctuates. This is why we can't trust ourselves to drive a car and text or to drive intoxicated. Because the machinery we use to manage and monitor the equipment is also impaired. The right. whole system, you know, it, it's driven by survival to have us keep performing consistently-ish uh, against the face of waning and fluctuating resources. And so part of the job of the brain is to smooth out the perception of changing performance so we can keep performing adequately and keep driving forward and keep grading, if you will. It's why we can function in low light conditions in the morning and middle of the day. And the whole system's range. And just the way our ear, our cochlea can range to hear a mosquito and a jet engine mm-hmm. by changing its sort of dynamic loudness tuning, you know, changing how stiff the cochlea is, for instance, in this case. The brain does that with all kinds of things like self-control and fine motor control and word processing and language and inhibition. So you can't tell if you're mildly impaired, typically, if you're a human, because you, you range the whole system that is judging that. Right. And so let's talk about, uh, you know this much more than I do. Mm-hmm. Tell us like the importance of brain scanning, how mm-hmm. often you think people... To, to understand if they have a healthy brain, how often they should yeah. get a brain scan, and then what they can expect from, from going in and getting one. Sure. I mean, when we say brain scan, there's a few things we should think about. One of them is, you know, what people might, cons- might already know about, MRIs, uh, CT scans, and a CT, for those folks that don't know, is basically a three-dimensional x-ray. We should call it CAT scan. So MRI, CT, spec scans, which is a me- measure of metabolic activity. Uh, those are sort of very high-level feature-driven, you know, looking at your brain, like I'm taking an internal picture of your tissue or your activity of your brain. And those are useful for identifying big problems. You know, if you have a major brain injury or a major psychiatric problem, maybe an MRI or a SPECT or something will find it. But if you're dealing with some like mild stuff or things that aren't necessarily a problem, a disease state like you're seeing ADHD or anxiety or aging, you know, those are normal features of having brains. You know, they're not necessarily disease states. 
So those things don't show up on MRIs and spec scans and x-rays and those kinds of things. We'll look for right. you know, more gross, if you will, tissue things or big giant regulatory things. What I do is EEG driven. That's called brain mapping or quantitative EEG, QEEG. And to get a brain map, it's a little different way of, of using imaging or using brain analysis, if you will. So a lot of the way we engage with data about ourselves, even those of us that are progressive and, you know, biohacking and tuning the system and athletes and things like that, we still, when it comes to the sophisticated data, have this sort of, um, I don't want to say passive, but we have this receptive mode where we just kind of believe what people say because once it's, once it's a certain amount of sophistication. And I think when, it, when we go to blind things, we can't see like our brains. Mm-hmm. We're really willing to say, oh, okay, this is what's true. Oh, okay. To a psychologist or a neurologist or somebody else. And I think we have to move away from that perspective a little bit when talking about your brain and move more into like a fitness perspective and say, oh, what are your resources and where do you want them to be? It's a different perspective than what's normal and what's wrong, you know, and okay. why aren't you normal? And this, you have to get, you know, this is what you have to do. So it's, it's from my perspective, and this is how I use the data, I use it as a scientist to help you demystify and understand your own brain. But I don't tell you what the data means, per se. I teach you how to read it. And I tell you what it might mean, what it often means with certain patterns, because what we're doing with this kind of imaging data, is this brain mapping, is we're looking at population level analyses, really broad 10,000 foot views on lots of things in your brain that should be, you know, you can consider them traits, not states, things that change very, very slowly. Your height, not if you're sitting up or standing down, not, not what you're doing with those traits, just gross resources. And so you see brain circuits that are involved with certain things, big, gross things, you know, if you will, um, that are you know, understandable if you think about how your brain works, but don't map perfectly to like a psychological problem necessarily. So, for example, there's switching systems in the brain. The back midline evaluates the environment and then looks for like mismatch if you're driving a car and talk to somebody in the back seat for a few seconds. This is a sense of uh, watch the road. That's the back midline, <laughs> throwing a flag in the place saying, oh, you're not seeing being safe, you know, and you need yeah. that resource, you use it all the time. But if you're exposed to environments that are either acutely or chronically stressful or dangerous or unpredictable, that resource gets extra active and you see a back midline extra amount of brain waves on a brain map. You see, oh wow, your beta brain waves at the posterior cingulate are a couple standard deviations higher than average compared to people your age with your eyes closed. That's unusual. That's a true statement. But here's, you know, this is not medicine. It's more like science. So you, instead of saying, and then here's what's wrong with you, you would say, ah, and for many people with an active posterior cingulate, there tends to be this um, extra checked in nature to the environment, threat sensitive, maybe some rumination or being stuck in worry. And you, and you see if this is valid or not. So it's not, a, it's not a top down, here's what's true. It's a hypothesis generation. Oh, that sounds valid. It does. Oh, that's interesting. Now, is it important? Does it get in the way or not? Oh, it does a little bit. Okay. Well, now we have a target, a fitness goal, a performance goal, if you will. And we've taken the sort of, here's what's wrong with you, symptom language and diagnostic language, which might be valid. There's use for that in many cases, but maybe not all. And we can look at resources in the brain that are very obvious things, like the switching systems. The other one of the fronts involved with perseveration. So if you have OCD or songs in your head or nail biting, that one becomes hot. Or if you have high levels of theta relative to beta in your brain in general, you can think of that as like air in the brake lines. In your brain so it's an adhd phenomenon or some other executive function or if your alpha waves are running slow relative to people your age you're having some speed of processing issues and usually those come along with word finding issues in the afternoon and so you can go through you know 20 or 30 or 40 of these giant high level features and again the goal isn't to say why aren't you average you know compared to everyone else the goal is to say let's find the big statistical outliers the sore thumbs and use those 
to construct a set of hypotheses about which bottlenecks you might be experiencing, what some, what some goals might be for you. And we use that like a fitness scan, you know, at a high-end gym, you know, left side versus right side, some strength stuff. Oh, you can use some core strength. Oh, core? Ah, yeah, I want abs. Okay, well now abs are on your list. And it's just a neurofeedback, it's you want access to flow state or you want better inhibitory tone or better word finding or you want to break up your PTSD or OCD or eliminate your seizures or drop your migraine. You know, it's that level of, of, you know, I joke we're sort of between a gym, a spa and a mechanic at peak brain, <laughs> you know, we'll give you the best coffee you've ever had right after your brain map. I think you'd be off of caffeine for the mapping because of the, uh, the comparison database, but the best coffee in the world will, you know, work, work out your brain with biofeedback on it. We'll teach you how to meditate and mentor you through a, a mindfulness development practice if you want. So it's about giving people tools though. And it's not saying here's a wrong, here's what you have to do. It's about saying, here's some tools intact. Let me demystify your brain, teach how to read your own brain maps. And so for instance, the QEG, the brain mapping, I don't charge a, a repeat fee for it. It's a one-time cost. Mm -hmm. And you can come back and map your brain every few months. And so the question you asked about how often at this, at this level, this QEEG, the brain mapping level, because I'm looking at you compared to average people your age, it's very 10,000 foot view traits and it doesn't change year after year. It's the same set of maps for you unless you're doing something pretty significant to your brain. So if you get a concussion or, you know, big shifts in stress and sleep that, you know, really erode your lifestyle or performance or, uh, you know, something else happens major, you might see a change, maybe, maybe some, some medications make big changes. But otherwise, you know, most things don't. And we use the mapping process with um, the biofeedback to sort of guide and demonstrate the changes we're making. So I typically map your brain. Um, most people for neurofeedback will do something like 40 to 50 sessions, which okay. is three to four months. You're three, you're three times a week, roughly. And you can do it at home. You can do it on your own. You can do it in the office. Um, you can pause and play it. You know, you have to do it all at once. But something like that, you know, 40, 50 sessions is a usually good first chunk regardless of, you know, almost what style of neurofeedback you're doing. And in our experience at Peak Brain, around that time course, you know, that sort of three to four month chunk of training, we typically get about two standard deviations of change in people's data. And two standard deviations of change in the brain maps, meaning you're getting significant physiological shift in things that would not shift otherwise. And we're also getting a couple of standard deviations change in the attention test and dramatic shifts in sleep and, you know, flexibility, resilience and creativity and other subjective things that are a little harder to quantify on testing. But all the things we test, things we quantify objectively all change together, which is a good sign that this is something real, right? So it's reliable, for instance, to come in with severe ADHD, three to four standard deviations out of range and executive function control or severe anxiety or major sleep issues. And in three to four months have no symptoms and be performing above average on executive function tests Wow. and have it be a permanent change at that point. Wow. That's Classic. amazing. That's the typical case, not the occasional case. In the easy things, the low-hanging fruit, sleep, stress, and attention, the things all brains do, that's the easy stuff. Things your brain is doing today, attending, switching gears, falling asleep, staying asleep, being alert. All the things you already do, those are the easy things. Because once you build enough of the resource, your brain is now regulating with new resources and stable. The things that are harder to do are things that are fighting against existing disease processes. Mm -hmm. or that have a lot more tissue, if you will, brain-based work versus mind-based work. Uh, so if you have Parkinson's or major brain injuries or autism or, you know, you can make change. You absolutely can. And it's amazing what you can see sometimes. But it's slower and it takes, you know, like six sure. months of permanence really instead of three or four. But it's an amazing process to say, you know what, I'm not happy with my brain. 
And instead of being blind to your brain and not having a sense of agency about your stress response circuits or your impulsivity or vigilance or maintenance of sleep or onset of sleep or switching your attention when you're stressed on things or suppressing seizures or migraines, whatever it is. You know, you can think about this in terms of what's wrong. You can also think about it in terms of what I want to do. In the flow context, we're, of course, really in the peak performance land for many people. Mm-hmm. You can do you can do therapeutic work with flow, but it's a really rough way to do therapy. It's by taking, I mean, I can, I, I can throw you into a flow state involuntarily. Mm-hmm. Therapy back, most of the way we do it is an involuntary process. You exercise, you, you operantly condition, shape up or shape down the brain waves briefly for half an hour. And you get a subtle shift and the next day you sort of see how you feel and gradually shape things up and down. It's kind of like personal training in that way where it's iterative. But there's one set of techniques that puts you in a hypnogogic state between awake and asleep, basically involuntarily. And you hold you there for 20, 25 minutes when you probably never experienced being there for more than a minute or two. So it's the neurofeedback equivalent of, of a float tank, wow. but like the best float tank you've ever been in. And if you do a <laughs> lot of that, you will train access that state reliably after a while. So you can get the visions and insights and things bubbling up or the, you know, deep stuff. If you aren't ready for it, that bubbles up too. But you can not just use it as a state shifter, but build access to flow entry over time through what's called alpha-theta neurofeedback. It's a very specialized uh, neurofeedback technique we use sometimes. Um, and it's used for you know, therapeutically as well as for peak performance. So it, there's, there's evidence showing it brings up creativity dramatically uh, in the literature. There's evidence showing that it helps the chronically over-aroused, burnt-out alcoholic who can't fall asleep without a drink or settle down, rebuilds that GABAergic tone quickly. And in my experience, within a week or two, the alcoholic who couldn't fall asleep without a drink can fall asleep voluntarily wherever they, they want and whenever they want after that. So, you know, it's, it's, it's agency here. You're, you're, you're being given control of your brain. It's not value. It's not psychology or medicine. It's not, it's not about what's right, right or wrong. It's about what's real. And we, we're so used to looking at our brains as a mysterious thing. I think we should look at them like our shoulders and our biceps and our abs and our cardiovascular health and our lung capacity and our VO2 max and our you know, VLDL oxidation risk for cholesterol and our APOE2 and 4 status for you know, oxidation of amyloid beta in our brains driving Alzheimer's. I mean, these are all things we know about. And many of us do actually control, control uh, oxidized fats and control health and stress and biohack the system. And we've been doing this since we had systems to modify. We've been, we've been modifying our brains and bodies since we had them. We have more information now about how to do that. And there's been no other time where it's been more accessible to actually control your brain. So the gross resources, stress response, attending, sleep onset and depth, clarity of thought, you know, vanishing brain fog, stamina late in the day, word finding, resilience, and the other odd things you can do brain down, like chronic pain or immune function or, you know, some pretty sophisticated things that are often psychological, like OCD or PTSD are very tractable. So that's, that's the sort of, um, you know, evangelistic disruptive call to action here is to, uh, you know, take control, shift happens, get yours. Right. You know? <laughs> uh, I know you mentioned people with like ADD or other disorders that have come in and, and really made yeah. incredible shifts, but say, you know, for the average Joe wants to come in and get a brain scan, what type of changes have they made in their just regular lives? Almost no matter what else you'll get, from neurofeedback, you'll get a bunch of broad things that will also happen. It's kind of like no matter what you want to get out of the gym, you know, if you start working out, a bunch of okay. things happen. Your sleep gets deeper, your balance improves, that kind of thing, you know, at the gym. And a bunch of very similar things shift in neurofeedback. Um, sleep improvements are one of them, at least the way that I work, uh, because I work very foundationally at first anyways. 
everyone gets sleep improvements whether or not you want them. Most people report something to the effect of, you know, I used to sleep eight or nine hours. It was okay. Now I'm sleeping like seven and a half and it's amazing. You know, <laughs> like it compresses and gets really, really efficient. And they're waking up, you know, early in the morning now without an alarm, refreshed, and you know, they can fall asleep at will. And so I work hard on the onset, the depth, and the sort of timing of sleep people a lot because I think it's a core feature. And then everyone gets better executive function tone too. So if you have ADHD, it eliminates it. But if you don't have ADHD, it means you have more control at the edges of your performance when you're fatigued, when you're stressed, when 11, thing 11 hits you, when you're planning on working with nine things, you know, it's, it's that edge of performance. The highest performers that I work with, um, people like Ben Greenfield, who I can be public about, uh, or Steven uh, Benjamin is an athlete, um, athlete. A few of these high level folks, they're not, they're, there's no issue with their performance at a population level, mm-hmm. right? I mean, a lot of these people do show brain stuff. There's you know, wear and tear when you're an athlete, especially the athletes, you know, there's often wear and tear, almost all of them. A couple of folks I've been shocked to you know, make it their job to hit their head, haven't had brain issues, I'm not sure why, but almost everyone who's a little bit physical, you know, will have a little wear and tear. It doesn't mean it's like a brain injury per se. You can think of it as, you know, akin to like an athlete having some, you know, scar tissue in their knee or their shoulder that aches here and there. It's, you know, it's, okay. it's, it's, it's constraining performance. So in the case of mild wear and tear, it means you aren't sleeping deeply or it's a bit brain fog. Your afternoons, you know, you wear out in the afternoon instead of at 6 or 7 or 8 or 9 or 10 p.m., you're hitting a wall at one or two. That's not that uncommon, you know? And I find that right. the average person does have some pretty core basic things about half the time and deepening sleep, improving the onset and offset of sleep um, is very, very core for shoring up all those broad resources. And then I work on resilience, you know, the executive function components that are about turning on and off the resources. So you can handle things changing dynamically much more easily. And you can also handle things not changing. So there's a vigilant circuit we tend to work on for everyone as well as a more inhibitory tone, if you will, circuit. So it's kind of like giving you slightly better gas and slightly better brakes in the car and steering. So when you do that, everything starts to change in your life. So just like after the gym, your first real big foray into fitness, physical fitness, you know, through, and you're like, oh my gosh, my balance feels different. My sleep was different last night. That was weird. (laughs) When you're just your brain about two weeks in, well, A, you have really lovely dreams that you want to kind of go back to sleep and find out what happens next and you start shrugging off all the tolerance to any cannabis and stimulants and anything else you've worked on for years that you've built up tolerance to. And then stuff starts to shift. And even if you didn't have a problem with your stress response or your depth of sleep or your impulsivity or your you know, speed of processing, you can still work on those things. And so you start becoming more yourself and it becomes a easier to do exactly the same thing you were doing before mentally. That's the first thing that happens mm-hmm. is you're suddenly able to exert much, much less for the same kind of performance. And then you find that you're leaning into performance. You didn't know you had the joke I tell is that, you know, yeah, I take you out of the UW bug and put you in a Tesla and oh my gosh, your driving changes, <laughs> you know, like you figure it out. Some, some people often ask me questions and what they're really asking is why don't I, I need therapy to fix my ADHD, my anxiety, my sleep issue, whatever it is. Cause that's been part of the process for them. And I usually sort of point out that once they have the resource out of the way, my hunch is that they'll use their new resource. And uh, that is that is true most of the time. I mean, in acute stuff, you don't want to just do neurofeedback. It's like you might need physical therapist or, you know, a, a movement therapist or something, not just a, a personal trainer, depending on what your goals are. A lot of the therapists I work with consider neurofeedback adjunctive in that um, the neurofeedback sort of helps the, the person's brain get out of the way, mm-hmm. the impulsivity, the stress, whatever it is, so you can do the therapy work. But my high performers, you know, <laughs> at least most of them don't think they have any problems. The CEOs, the, the multi-figure you know, income guys, of course, the, right. 
the Ben, the ben Greenfields, all these super high-end guys that are incredibly performant, incredibly successful by any metric and by multiple metrics. You know, you pick someone like Ben, business, lifestyle, personality. I mean, he's got everything dialed in. He's an incredibly well-adjusted guy who's in unbelievable shape, who's crushing it in business. And, he, and, and he's, he's really nice. He's actually a really nice guy. But even these folks that come in with everything dialed in, I look at the brain and go, oh, look at this. You've got a little bit of, uh, you know, a lot of times the CEO types have a touch of rumination or perseveration. And it's not that you have to get rid of that, but if it's suck on more than you want, you can unclench it. And then spin it up when you want to spin it up and be Steve Jobs and be hyper-focused and rigid. And then go home and put it down. That's the problem that CEOs have, that high-performing intellectuals have and, and business owners is they... Yeah. They're, they're really good at ramping up those switching circuits, the threat detection, the assessment, the categorization, the, you know, the strategic thinking, the hyper-focus, the rumination. They're really good at turning those things on. They're not so good at turning those things off, <laughs> right? Yeah. So a lot of my job for some of those people is go, oh, here are some of the circuits that get tweaked. They can get tweaked sometimes and produce PTSD or OCD. Not true for this person. This person's just running at like 120 miles an hour all the time because of 10 years of running Elon Musk style multitasking. Um, <laughs> and they probably haven't learned, there's no longer any intermediate speeds and it's quite stressful. They often come to me not because there's any performance issues, but because they feel like they're exerting quite a lot. And there's not enough flexibility to be as patient with their spouse or kids or other business or other thing they have to do. Or they've kind of forgotten the joy of what they're doing because they've been grinding for two to four years, especially those, mm -hmm. especially the early entrepreneurs that I work with, those really high powered guys in Silicon Beach, Silicon Valley, some of the guys from, from Texas oil, you know, startups, a lot of these guys that work really hard and grind in the startup mode that we, we have to do these days mm -hmm. will work incredibly hard for one to two years and then keep doing that for startups or they'll hit that sweet spot. And I use that term ironically of about two to five years in their companies which is when you have to go from a small to a large company, mm -hmm. you know, and that is a, that is a time at which you actually have to start working harder than you had to work at the beginning. Right. Right. Because you aren't yet scaled up to handle the company you're trying to become, <laughs> you have the resources to scale up to become that company. And yet you need to create those resources. So that's what peak brain has been doing. And we're about uh, four years in October this year. And we opened up with one angel investor who came in with a quarter million at the beginning, just under four years ago, because he was just impressed with work we had done with one of his family members. He wanted us to make sure he had a, a center that he could have access to. So uh, we, we were in the process of launching a new company. I was, I was splitting off of an addiction center at the time. And so he encouraged us to open up a community. And we've been running since, we, since that first 250, I've uh, been running without any other investment uh, ever since and growing. Nice. And this is my sixth startup, I think, or fifth. And I've done lots of things wrong. Uh, in other startups, I mean, you have to. This is the first time when it, where I was the number one person at the top, you know, instead of like hired two or three or four or 10. Mm -hmm. In past startups, I got a lot of experience being frustrated with other people making mistakes I might not have made if I was able to make a different decision. And I got lots of validation the first two or three years of Big Brain, making the decisions the way I wanted to and having it actually work out pretty well. I mean, our first year revenue was something like 400K and then you know, close to eight the second year and above nine last year. And we'll break that this year. Nice. Um, you know, and I've been doing it without any investment, which is wonderful from my perspective. Also, it's hard because growing a revenue is hard. Right. And I'm, you know, a small company, like 20 people, 25 people, and we want to become a larger company. And I'm trying to change how neurofeedback is done to make it yeah. more quantified self and fitness. So at this point, you know, I've, um, I've had a really buried experience. I used to do old school CRM work and client server work back in the day, like 15, 20 years ago. 
I used to go in and build CRM company, a CRM, uh, custom CRMs for companies that were formerly public uh, utilities that were deregulating and learning how to do sales. So I, I you know, I have this, this really deep sales and CRM history, and it's tragic that I'm doing peak brain sales and marketing without a modern you know, marketing automation. But that's what I'm doing right now is building out the marketing funnels and automation. Uh, it's, it's backwards. And I encourage anyone entrepreneur listening who's building out is, um, you know, if you're a product or service, and, 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 you're, and if, if you're a growth hacker first, or an entrepreneur first, and a product specialist or service specialist second, this advice is not for you. But if you're somebody with a product or vision or service that is your calling and your goal, and you're learning to become a business person as part of this, don't do what I did, and I knew better, and leave the effort and the regularization, the systemization of your sales and marketing to after you're deep into the process of delivering services. I mean, I just built revenue. I could, I did. Yeah. I mean, you heard the numbers, they were, they were, they're decent. But I did so while building more branches and throwing every single dollar I had into footprint, into, into service delivery. So on paper, I'm breaking even still. So my EBIT is low, so it's really hard to get an investment right now. So there's a bunch of things I you know, didn't do right. So I have to drive revenue up right now before I can take off a nice uh, round or something. But um, the, uh, you know, building your funnels, building your marketing automation, building your networking, whatever that is for you, local or virtual, you must systematize it and you must tend it like a garden. And sure. I would start with old school guy, Kawasaki Chasm, and I would move <laughs> into much more modern, you know, get into something like HubSpot or, in, or uh, Infusionsoft or Entreport, build those things out and learn it yourself. You know, don't, don't, don't farm this stuff out. Modern tech, you know, I got into entrepreneur stuff 10, 15, 20 years ago. It was hard to do everything yourself and you kind of had to. Um, now it's harder, but you can. Yeah. You, know, you really can use one tool as a skilled tech savvy entrepreneur and build an entire company and marketing automation and service delivery with a lot of levers and a lot of range as an individual. But you have to, you have to really spend time systematized. There's no scalability and you will not be successful and you'll grind forever and never be and never reap the benefits essentially that you want. I love how you guys are, are pushing the the brain fitness because um you know still people just associate any type of um, brain health with uh, either a mental illness or um, therapy or something that is, is if your brain if you need brain fitness if you need brain health your brain's broke basically is what people think mm -hmm. but that's not true and and what you're saying is like just like we work out our muscles at the gym we need to work our brains in the proper way and understand where it's going where it's coming from and it's interesting how fast the science is changing and how much we're learning on a regular basis I'm wondering if you could just kind of briefly describe we talk with our clients and listeners a lot about the different states of mind beta alpha theta and delta and, mm. and even beyond that um and gamma and and i'm curious could you just give a, a brief description of all of those and then sure uh, where little, little flow wave primer yeah, yeah and then where flow state is and then sure yeah. yeah, that's easy stuff. Yeah, that's, okay, like, that's, cool. that's what we do in Neurofeedback. It's exactly right. And, you, and we, we educate you in this landscape too. Mm -hmm. That's the nice thing about Peak Brain is it's not so much you come in with a symptom and we do it for you. It's you come in with a goal and you want yeah. in the process of solving your goal. Like, like it's like fitness people. Much with the, what the metaphor here is like a you know, gym bro learning they can become huge and becoming super huge all their time working out. But that happened in Neurofeedback. You get super well adjusted, incredibly well rested and have incredible flow access. And, you know, because you learn, you can take control of the resources and you get a little bit crazy with it. But in terms of the brainwaves, and we make all brainwaves all the time. It's important to know. You don't make, you don't make one brainwave. You're making a range of frequencies 
from pretty close to zero hertz or zero cycles per second, some big slow shifts that take you know, 30, 40, 50 seconds to, to, to make a change, to oscillate. And there's other brain waves that are as fast as probably 1,000 hertz or okay. more. And classically, we think about brain waves in the sort of like zero through four, we call it delta, and then going up in frequency, I'll unpack these in a moment, going up in order of frequency, it's delta, theta, alpha, beta, and then gamma. And so delta is, delta is up to about four hertz, up to four cycles per second. Classically, it's like two to four, but actually about up, you know, zero to four. And delta, you can think of delta as a brainwave you, you live in. You don't think in delta. You live in it. Okay. So when you're deeply asleep and not dreaming, your cortex is washing itself in delta like it's a washing machine in the agitation mode. Is that and the prefrontal cortex? Everywhere. Everywhere. Okay. The CSF, the cerebral spinal fluid, is pumping out uh, literal pressure waves of fluid to pull all the metabolic byproduct and toxins out from around your cells that have built up throughout the day mm -hmm. and to reset any weak synapses like an etch-a-sketch being shaken. So any learning that wasn't quite done gets reset. And it also helps any learning that's almost done to be cemented. It, it makes those grooves deeper. Mm -hmm. that, the process of consolidating strong memories and wiping away weak ones. The, that learning happens in slow wave dreamless sleep. So you have to be in dreamless sleep. This is the stage of sleep that happens about 90 to 100 minutes in okay. to your first uh, night of sleep. And that happens again every hour, roughly, for about 10 minutes, probably. So that's the most critical stage for things like memory consolidation and body stuff. And when you're awake, delta is really present a lot in like the brainstem. And it keeps your heart and lungs and autonomic things moving and okay. other body processes. But you don't think in delta. So if you see delta in the cortex, the top of your brain, it usually means essentially that part of your brain is stuck in slow mode. It's asleep. Okay. And if you see it focally, a little spot in the brain, especially if you see it with eyes, eyes open, it likely means the brain was bruised um, or injured, crushed briefly, um, some impact or some low area of circulation or some toxin is resident in that area or you know, some mold or lime or something. And so what you have is an area of reduced metabolic activity, the sleepy area of the brain. Okay. And you can see these on brain mapping. Um, so you want to be able to switch into Delta deeply when you're asleep and not dreaming and then out of it, mostly when you open your eyes. And the next frequency up, theta, which is four to seven hertz, is receptive attention largely. It's many things. But that's uh, pattern matching, noticing things, having ideas bubble up. It's this receptive attention state. It's not flow state itself, but it has, um, it, it's one of the components of flow state. Okay. And um, if you don't have good access to a specific frequency around six and a half or seven hertz, you have a really hard time pulling memories out. Um, if most people have no problem making theta, it's a very typical state for us to go into. Most people actually probably have too much theta, more than they want, because um, the more theta you have, the more air there is in the brake lines of your self-control. Okay. And if you have a lot of theta, especially frontally, you end up with ADHD. That's the okay. most valid marker in the brain maps, actually. It's the ratio of theta to beta. Theta is like a gas pedal or an active frequency. So the ratio of theta to beta is 94% predictive of ADHD in brain maps. Truly valid marker we have, actually. And then above theta, you have alpha frequencies running from between about uh, 7 up through about 13. There's multiple frequencies in there. There's a slow alpha, which is an idling frequency, 7 to 10 hertz or 8 to 10 hertz. And this is a rest mode. You close your eyes and the visual system, the back of the head goes into this big, slow, rounded alpha wave mode, around 10 hertz, you know, but just below that. And then just above 10 okay. hertz, 10 to 12, there's this fast alpha. And this is where flow is really happening. But it's not so much the 
entry of the flow, but it's the quick process of flow. You know, the component of flow that feels very lubricated and, and smooth and rapid when you're moving slow, that's, flow, that, that, that's, that's the fast alpha. And so by itself, the fast alpha doesn't necessarily be, mean a good or a bad thing. You know, if it's happening coupled with a theta, and I'll mention that in a moment, um, it's a good thing. But if it's happening by itself, if you have too much of this fast alpha by itself, it's kind of being stuck in a rapid state. And then you end up with pressured attention and too rapid and your thoughts are having you. Mm. And now it's like going downhill on a mountain bike with no brakes. You don't get there faster, you know? Right. Um, you, you get there with much less control and with much more, you know, injury uh, uh, if you, you know, can't, can't inhibit the system. So that's fast alpha. But then there's this overlapping region on the motor strip area um, called SMR, sensory motor rhythm, which is 12 to 15 hertz. It's a low beta frequency. And this is, this is a magical frequency in neurofeedback, SMR, sensory motor rhythm. And if you make a lot of SMR, your body is very, very relaxed. You have complete inhibitory tone, control over your thoughts. You suppress seizures perfectly. Mm. You turn on and off sleep states very, very well, and you have very, very good learning. SMR was the frequency that Barry Sturman discovered in the late 60s, suppressed seizures in cats when trained up in neurofeedback by mistake, largely. It's the same frequency that much of the field still sort of constellates around. And if you do SMR training on the motor strip, you create what's called inhibitory tone. The circuits between the cortex and the thalamus that go back and forth and kind of gate all the input output and control behavior and sensory systems. And there's a bunch of circuits that synapse on that input output uh, structure called cortical thalamic and thalamic cortical circuits. And um, this gain system, NRT, particularly nucleus of the thalamus, is inhibitory only. It's like a gain circuit to only dampen Mm-hmm. the input or output of behavior, thought, attention, sensory, everything. So you can train up SMR and get more gain control, i.e. inhibit, i.e. get rid of ADHD, i.e. reduce seizures, et cetera, wow. et cetera, et cetera. And reliably, it works for everyone, whether or not there's a problem. This is, again, fitness, not medicine. So you can find the resource, target the resource. Uh, that's SMR. And then beta frequencies in the teens and above are where you really think. And most of your thinking is like the 12 to 18 hertz range. starts getting busy and buzzy, a little friction, little stress moments are 18 to 22. Usually okay. faster frequencies up in the 20s are really, really anxious. I often see 24 peaks, 28 hertz peaks when people have a little buzz, buzzy anxiety stuff happening. But in, in certain circuits. So it's not about where, it's not about general brain waves. It's about, you know, is that posterior cingulate threat detector, the evaluator I mentioned earlier, that'll be extra active in the beta or the high beta frequencies, you know, the teens or above when you're really buzzy with anxiety, but you can also be really disinhibited. Like you can't stop thinking about things, but you aren't necessarily driven. Mm-hmm. Now it's a theta excess on a circuit, meaning no brakes instead of a beta excess on a circuit, meaning too much accelerator. So you can have a similar phenomenon with slightly different ways that it, it operates for you and different ways to go after it. And then above 38 Hertz, you have gamma. Okay. 38 to about 200 is gamma. And actually, gamma is probably closer to like 800 or 600. But the gamma you can measure from outside the head stops at about 38. So the vast majority of people doing consumer or even research-grade EEG talking about gamma are not measuring gamma. They're measuring noise or eye movement or other things. Because EEG, is, as you go up in frequencies, as you go from like delta all the way up through gamma, you start off with a big giant delta wave, you know, one delta wave. Mm-hmm. It's about two seconds and it's a big giant hump of energy, you know, maybe it's 10 microvolts. Let's say let's give it a number and the same gamma 10 microvolts. Let's say this gamma is a 38 or 40 Hertz wave will be, you know, 40 Hertz, little tiny waves, 40 little tiny waves in a second. 
Mm -hmm. make 10 microvolts versus one delta wave, which is one big giant hump of 10 microvolts in a couple seconds. This, this is called the one over F or amplitude or frequency rule. This is what happens in reality, physics. Like as you go up in frequency, you go down in amplitude of the same energy. This is how all energy works anywhere, living and otherwise in the world. Therefore, as you go up and up in frequencies, it gets harder and harder to measure the faster brain waves because they get smaller and smaller. Okay. And they're being generated from inside the skull and scalp and meninges and layers of tissue, and they attenuate out and they pass through a layer of tissue, they get smaller, they get, get dampened. Gamma, above about 38 hertz, which is where gamma really starts, is attenuated below the noise floor of measurement equipment as is used in almost every circumstance today. So you really can't measure gamma. Gamma is a sexy thing. Gamma, as you know, most times people use the word gamma in, in a modern context outside of a research lab. You should really lump it in the same category as if they just use the word quantum or the word detox okay. or the, you know, or the, or the word, you know, it's, it's a charge word with very little meaning in the way it's being used. Okay. Um, and it's, it's, it's a buzzword that is a little woo at this point. Um, and, and so people who are using gamma and EEG, it's nonsense, honestly, um, unless you're doing a very specific research, research context. So, so be very cautious buying into gamma stuff because there's a lot of it out there these days in, in, in marketing language, but it's, that's all it is. Okay. So, so you can't associate but, gamma with like, you know, delta or uh, sleeping and, and beta is uh, regular activity, you know, as... Uh, no, all brain waves all the time. You make it all the time. You have to. You need them all. But okay. for instance, gamma is at 40 roughly and theta is at 4 hertz roughly. And mm -hmm. the coupling of gamma, the ringing of gamma and theta together, you know, 10 cycles of that coupling, if you will, of 40 hertz to 4 hertz, mm -hmm. um, that coupling in time, cross-frequency coupling of theta to gamma is consciousness is awareness of consciousness at least. So if you break the time coupling with an anesthetic, you go unconscious. And you can measure that consciousness with a single electrode in the forehead and measure the phase coupling of the two frequencies. And anesthesiologists can tell how close to consciousness you are by if those waves are in phase or not, in that, in that, in that coupling way. Or, you know, it's one of about a hundred things you can look at, we know about, but it's, it's a phenomenon we know where to look. We don't always know why. And you know, long-term meditators in gamma, in research contexts, again, uh, 40 hertz roughly, you'll find that if you're meditating for 20 years, you've increased gamma connectivity between regions. Um, and schizophrenics seem to have decreased gamma connectivity between regions. But that's of limited utility from my perspective because, well, you know, I, I can measure your alpha. If your alpha is slow, your alpha is running at, you know, nine and a half hertz instead of 10 hertz, I know what that means. It means you're having word finding problems and you're feeling sluggish and you can't remember anything. Mm -hmm. And I know what to tell you to do about it, you know, and to change it. But the gamma you can't measure unless you're in a lab with a $100,000 machine in your head, basically. Right. You, can't, you know, can't measure it. And so people are talking about it everywhere. They're using light and sound stimulation. They're using low-cost consumer gear to sort of do gamma protocols. It's utter nonsense, unfortunately. And it obscures some of the amazing things you can do. I mean, it is not an overstatement to say you can eliminate ADHD in most people in a few months with basic SMR neurofeedback. Or the literature shows you can drop seizures. The average person, it's more than 50% and 5% of people have complete control of seizures for a year, at least, mm -hmm. doing neurofeedback. And it was discovered 50-something years ago on cats because it reduced seizures. Cats are very bad instruction followers. This is not a voluntary placebo-driven <laughs> process. Right. This is something we're reaching in and exercising tissue. So you have to sort of be okay with a little bit of uncertainty in investigating phenomena and then go after the things you can find. But yes, you're right, that all brain waves are happening all the time. There is no alpha state per se, or theta state, or gamma state. That's not pathological. Okay. Uh, by the same token, you also always use all your brain. This idea you use 10% right. of your brain. If you fired every circuit, every cell at the same time, well, you would die. If you fired half the cells at once, you'd have a massive seizure, probably still die. 
But the activity of cell metabolism and the presence of information aren't necessarily the same thing. So the activation of a brain region is as useful as the deactivation of a brain region for a circuit. Mm-hmm. You know, Michelangelo, Da Vinci, you know, how do you, how'd you create the statue? Well, I took the block of stone and removed what wasn't part of the statue, carved out the circuit, the negative space, essentially. Mm-hmm. That's some of how the brain works. So which circuits aren't active at any one moment compared to which are is the information. So you aren't firing every cell at once. You wouldn't want to do that. You, you would cook your brain, literally. That's one reason why our brains, the biggest processing problem we have in our brains is heat, actually. Now, fuel and heat, it uses so much fuel for yeah. everything else, and it gives off so much heat. It's, that's the reason dolphins can have a brain that is dramatically larger and has better surface area, you know, more, more uh, grooves and bumps, uh, gyri and salsa, because they have cooling that's much, much better than ours. So they can, they can have larger and more complicated brains. Otherwise, we would have larger and more complicated brains. But, you know, we can't. Right. This is about as big as it gets without um, hitting the edge of the engineering limit. Now that we've defined those brainwaves a bit, what is, what is in, I know this is a pillar of, of Peak Brain Institute, what is meditation doing to us uh, that's so beneficial for our minds? See a bunch of things. Um, there are several circuits specifically, and most of them are in the frontal areas, that are involved with executive function, i.e. choosing what you focus on and how you use your attention, that are focused on body awareness, that are focused on sense of self, that are focused on value and judgment. And meditation and mindfulness will change those circuits over time. So the biggest change, some of the first change that was seen is in dorsolateral areas of the brain, so the frontal areas and the sides. And these areas will thin with age, normal aging, not, not, not illness or pathology, just normal aging will thin down by you know, 20% or something as you hit your 70s and 80s. And that produces with it a loss of body awareness and a bunch of other things, self-control a little bit, some concentration stuff. It's an aging thing. Not a big deal, but not necessarily ideal either. And uh, there's some initial work done by um, a scientist named Lazar. I think she started when she was a grad student with these papers. She was wonderful papers ever since uh, coming out of her lab. Um, looking at what meditation does to long-term meditators. And they found that the insula and lateral parts of the, of, the, of the frontal lobe that normally thin with aging are spared the thinning, the age-related cortical thinning is completely spared. Perfectly correlated, not perfectly, but highly correlated with um, the degree to which you meditate lifelong. It's a okay. dose-dependent sparing, if you will. So much of the literature seems to suggest that around 20 minutes a day will actually have you sidestep completely the ravages of cortical thinning which from the point of view of raw neuroscience is actually the number one resource we, you might care about, i.e. speeder processing. The one thing that changes a lot with age is speeder processing, the memory access, word finding, and short-term memory, and a bunch of stuff is bound to it. So really, really useful to meditate 20 minutes a day. And that's the, the broad stuff, the lateral frontal areas. There's also been some research more recently by other scientists whose name escapes me where you end up getting sort of an activation, a stabilization of the switching system and that anterior cingulate in the front middle and that really decides what's important to pay attention to. So in a QEG, if that area is overactive, I see it uh, in nail biting and OCD and songs really stuck in your head. And it's the switching system, you know, the, the valuation of what's capturing your attention. Mm-hmm. And when people uh, do meditative practices across different practices, it looks like you get more stability in choosing what you focus on because that system becomes more stable and more flexible. It will turn on and off better. There's been some other research more recently I've read that shows that the underside, the um, ventral medial prefrontal cortex starts to change as well. Uh, Later on, not right away, but after some time, after some weeks and months of meditation, 
there seems to be the shift, the activation that you get during meditation goes from dorsomedial front midline to ventromedial, a push to, uh, underside midline of the, of the frontal lobe. And the explanation I read is that this is essentially your brain moving from I-centric self value-driven to selfless, the I is not part of the equation of value and, and, per, and perceiving what's happening around you. So it's the almost, it's, it's that experience we hear about classically in meditation of being, you know, not necessarily anchored in, in, within the moment, but still being very present without, you know, almost like being the space between your thoughts, you know, you aren't anchored into any one moment. And it's that piece of it. And that piece comes along with all the other slightly more esoteric concepts that I think are quite useful for modern living, like equanimity, you know, being okay with how things are, not being mm -hmm. okay with suffering, but not adding more suffering to it because, you know, the person cuts you off or because, you know, you stub your toe, whatever. It's that second dart you have voluntary control over reacting to with more suffering to existing suffering. You can't control pain, but you can control your response to it. And that's what this is. As you meditate, you move more and more and more from a self-centric reactivity and controlling the environment as it relates to you specifically in the moment of time to a mode that is much more diffuse, high level above it all and not self-centric. And that, of course, tracks with what classic uh, writing would say about meditation benefits, too. So um, there's some things, and it also changes your, your perception of time and a bunch of other, you know, other very subtle things and broad things and sleep and aging and, you know, things you've already mentioned about gamma connectivity. So it's doing a great deal. Again, these are phenomena. The brain is not necessarily something we deeply understand. Mm -hmm. We understand deeply a million different little things about it. And we have a really hard time, once we're deep into any one of those things, consolidating all the models into an actual coherent idea of how some of the brain's really, truly working. Like we don't even know our memories are stored still, really. Wow. We have like 17 different candidates for how memories are formed. <laughs> and they're probably all a little bit true. And memory is not probably stored in one particular place, by the way. It's probably a holographic, uh, it's like an algorithm, like a mathematical formula that rings like a song throughout the brain in multiple places and can be, can re, can be reconstructed from any place where the mathematical signature is evident, like a hologram. Yeah. Uh, so there's, there's some very strange things happening. We don't know what they are. And so we're all blind men and elephants here. And anyone who tells you they have, that they know what the truth is about the brain, you should be very cautious. Um, people that <laughs> provide you information and help you understand things and give you access, you should like us because that's, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm biased, but I think this is a phenomenological space you can engage with and get benefits out of versus sacred cows. There's, there's no sacred cows in neuroscience. It's just information and data. What's a good basic uh, meditation that you would recommend for people that want to get started or people that come into to your lab? I really like to have people do a basic five minute sort of uh, a stabilization of focus and then followed by a 15 minute or, or even shorter present time awareness. So I do, if you use classic language, it'd be five minutes of Samatha and 15 minutes of Vipassana. If you use modern language, it's five minutes of concentration practice followed by 15 minutes of insight practice. If you use neutral sort of scientific language or you know, alpha psychological language, I would say it's five minutes of single point awareness followed by 15 minutes of present time awareness. And I have a little tutorial on the Peak Brain Institute website. You can go and see how we teach you meditation. But if this 20 minute practice sounds like a lot, just cut it in half. But the idea is to do a few minutes of stabilization focus and concentrate and, and pack your attention down to very narrow, little tiny focus. And this will stabilize things and settle things. And then once it's settled, you can then move to a more awareness practice where you're planting your, your experience, planting your feet in the stream of your mind letting things flow by without being pulled along by them. So I really like this class. It's a very, very classic way. I mean, I, this has probably been taught, you know, since before we know, but I really like this classic way of teaching a concentration practice and then an insight practice or a 
single point into present time. And I find the stabilization and then awareness you get from this leaves you very, very uh, um, resilient. And, I, and people ask when to do it. I encourage you to do it in the morning. If you have half an hour or 20 minutes, do it in the morning. If you have uh, an hour, well, you can do it in the morning and the evening. And then the joke is, if you don't have an hour, well, then you must meditate two hours a day. Yeah. <laughs> you know? That's the old tale, uh, right? Right. I mean, I mean, seriously, though, 20 minutes, people say balk at that. And I understand that. It sounds like a lot. You can do 10 minutes, cut it in half to two and a half minutes, and then, you know, seven and a half. The thing is that people don't really realize you haven't done much meditation. Well, first of all, it's not that hard to do. You know, it's kind of boring. But two, once you do a little bit of it for a week or two, the 10 or 20 minutes you put in, in the morning, you'll, you'll get back multiple times throughout the yeah. day through more efficient and less reactive life. Yes. Like, I don't, I don't just mean like you'll be better quality. You'll literally gain those minutes back because you'll waste less time. You'll procrastinate. You'll stress less. You'll be, it's unbelievable how more, how more efficient your life can become. If you dial an executive function before you step out the door, yeah. you know, you'd have to handle lots of things changing that would normally throw you off. You know, so. Yeah, I agree more. I've been meditating for five years or so in every morning. And and when I don't meditate on those days, I can definitely tell a difference. Like, uh-oh, I've, I've, I've missed something. And I think, oh, my God, I forgot mm -hmm. my meditation today. I, I'd like to talk a little bit about the effects of alcohol and drugs on the brains. And I'm, I'm guessing you've probably seen directly uh, either alcoholics or drug abusers or even um, maybe using them on occasional basis, how it affects the brain and the health benefits versus the how much it can actually damage the brain. In terms of the effects of drugs and alcohol in the brain, there, there's some effects, but they're not that acute unless the drugs or alcohol are active. The big one I see a lot of, I mean, I see a lot of cannabis use. I see mm -hmm. a lot of caffeine use. I see a lot of alcohol use. Alcohol is the dangerous one. Chronic drinking, you know, even not high levels, but frequent drinking for many, many months will produce a brain that is very, very tolerant and dependent on alcohol. Mm -hmm. And what you end up in the absence of alcohol is in a brain that has lost its ability to downregulate and to go into this sort of you know, lower tone. So the chronic alcoholic, in the absence of alcohol, the brain looks like they're in chronic pain or chronic activation. They can't fall asleep, can't turn their mind off, they're shaky, they're nervous. And those states, once sort of taught by the alcohol through the behavior, can be really hard decades later. You can still have this over-aroused brain. So, you know, I, I don't think there's really any safe level of alcohol. We used to think that some alcohol be beneficial. And there's been some studies recently showing that any alcohol actually seems to enhance the, or increase the total causes of death in your life. So wow. um, there's really no safe, safe level of alcohol at all. You know, in terms of cardiovascular health, it's better not to have any. And then, you know, most of the drugs are much less... Um, most lifestyle drugs, recreational, you know, politically uh, sort of appropriate drugs, if you will, are not all that severe, you know, in terms of health risks. And some even have some benefits. I mean, coffee, hugely beneficial. And a study came out recently showing the upper limit for coffee is much, much higher than we thought it was. Interesting. Like 26 cups a day or something is where the health benefits start to, where you still have a drawback. As long as you can tolerate the caffeine, you know, anxiety and cardiovascular activation and things. Um, the health risks seem to show up around, you know, more than two dozen cups of coffee. I think it was 26, 27 cups of coffee is where it really started to show up. You know, huge, right? Well, right. people have lots of cardiovascular events from caffeine. It's not coffee typically. It's things like energy drinks with unusually, um, you know, specific amounts of not just caffeine, but other activating chemicals in them. Yeah. I think there should have lots of caffeine and coffee specifically, but, you know, no alcohol. And then the cannabis, you know, there's no one's ever died from cannabis and there doesn't, doesn't be any physiologically habit forming. And um, it seems to have a lot of other issues. If, if you're pro anxiety or you have some, you know, history of psychosis or bipolar or other instability type of brain things, then cannabis is going to drive up your 
your likelihood of being unstable. It's going to throw you off. Mm -hmm. And if you're ADHD or other issues of motivation or you seek high stimulus things, well, maybe, you know, something that works against your, you know, best interest a little bit sometimes, but not the way an illicit substance was necessarily any more than anything stimulating. Like you can get into serious trouble with substances, but you can get into serious trouble with television or sex or food. You know, you're not going to stop eating. Uh, right. You don't have to stop watching television. You can, you know, but you probably shouldn't have, you know, stopping sex. You can. But when we think about lifestyle things, it becomes about optimizing choices. And every, every food thing we eat has the potential of being healthy or not. And we can be orthorexic about it and dial in incredibly rigid behavior and do only things that are super healthy for us. Eating perfectly keto and anti-inflammatory and you know, no allergens and all the good, you know, whatever vegetables is great. And then you walk by a donut shop and fall into a coma because you smelled some starch, you know, because you're okay. not metabolically flexible anymore. Well, I mean, I, I think I think you should really figure out for you. Some of these things are very personal, diet, exercise, lifestyle, you know, even things like meditation have contemplative and prayerful kind of aspects for some people. Very personal, the way you implement these things. So you have to figure out what works for you. But once you figure it out, then my advice is to try to be perfect about 80% of the time and okay. throw caution to the wind and, and know where that line is. But like right. throw caution to the wind. Okay, today's I'm eating, I'm eating cake and donuts and pizza. Okay. You know, most of them I'm keto, but today I'm having starch, you know, right. or whatever. Or today, or, you know, usually I pray every day or usually I do yoga every single day. But, you know, twice a week I'm, or one day, one day a week, I'm going to like sleep in and like not stretch, woo, you know, or something. <laughs> uh, I, don't, I don't really care what it is, you know, like the concept of like life cheat days is valid. It's not, it's about flexibility, human experience and performance and health requires ranging of systems, dynamic range, right? Without that dynamic range, you lose everything. And so I think most lifestyle things that are beneficial improve range or protect range and most things that harm it will uh, impair that range. And that is where drugs get to become a problem only in that in as much as they impair range in physiology regulation or they impair range of choice of behavior because they're really reinforcing. But very quickly that gets away from being about the drug and into being about managing your lifestyle and habits and what you find interesting and rewarding. So, Any feedback on long-term marijuana usage? That's what I'm curious of. As far as I can tell, there's none. I mean, I, I'm out there in a lot of the absence of, of stimulants and I see the brain on people who use cannabis a lot. Okay. on and off cannabis, their brain maps. And for most people that are very long-term users, there's no evidence, I can tell. The literature has some weak things in it, but they aren't especially robust. When, you're, when it's active in your brain, it's absolutely active in your brain. You can see it then. You know, it causes some getting stuck in flow state and being a little bit disinhibited, a little bit you know, more flowy and a little bit more ADHD, essentially, and maybe more anxious, depending on your, you know, where you started mm -hmm. uh, for most brains. But like many substances, what the effect you have on your brain, to some extent, uh, is determined by where you start you know, a little bit and who you are to begin with. And um, like, I've done a lot of work on nootropic brain changes as well as some cannabis stuff. And it tends to move people in different directions and based on where you start. The chronic long-term users, I will say, in the absence of cannabis, if they're using it every day or often, you know, frequently, many times a day, later on, they, um, in the absence of cannabis, uh, if it just washed out for one day, they do look like they're, you know, not as good, not as performant. Right. Having lots of deep washouts, you know, for several weeks, where they're back to a baseline, because they're probably like you know a little bit dependent on it if you're using high levels every single day. Sure. Like like caffeine, I make you come in and do your mapping without caffeine. People do not perform exceptionally well in their attention tests when I make them come in without caffeine. Yeah. You know, is that their baseline? I don't know, but it's at least consistent with the database I'm comparing you with, and it's consistent across the way that I measure you. 
So again, science, not 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 medicine here. It's not truth. It's just data. You know. I think we'll wrap up. I could I could have you on the podcast for another hour and a half, easy. Uh, <laughs> but uh, Andrew, that no was that was amazing. Thanks. Um, I loved all that stuff. If the listeners want to reach out and learn more about what you guys have going on, where's the best place they can do that? So Peak Brain LA is our Twitter and Instagram. Peakbraininstitute.com is our website. Uh, I think I'm, I'm also Andrew Hill PhD on Twitter and Instagram, but you know, please reach out on the website or the, uh, you know, one of the socials and um, we'd love to hear brain questions. We can also come to free events in St. Louis and Los Angeles quite, quite often, multiple times a month. We have meditation classes and free talks and things. And then, um, of course, if you're near one of the cities, you can do one of the training regimens for a few months. If you're not near one of the cities, you can come for a few days and do a uh, get set up with your own equipment, which is often quite nice. So let us know if you want to come to either for an intensive or for just a brain map or for some meditation classes. And all the things we do are, you know, in the evenings, all the classes are free. It's odd in L.A. and even in St. Louis to find free meditation groups with high-quality teachers, but we make sure to sponsor very good teachers long-term. So if you're near one of those cities, uh, you owe it to yourself to come meditate with great teachers and, and do some, some practice. So Yeah, go work out your brain, you guys. It's, it's, it's important, very important. Andrew, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for sharing all your wisdom with us and your knowledge. We really appreciate it. Thank you. My pleasure. Talk to you soon. Take care. And listeners, we're going to wrap up there. Thank you guys for tuning in, and we'll see you on the next episode. Goodbye, everybody. Hey listeners, thanks for joining us once again. We wanted to remind you about our high performance productivity coaching and our five, six, seven, and eight figure private masterminds. These are all designed for entrepreneurs by entrepreneurs to help you scale rapidly and grow. Check out all the details at thebusinessmethod.com. That's thebusinessmethod.com. And we'll see you all on the next episode.